Hello, this is Bishop Michael Fisher of the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo. Perhaps you've been asked this question before. If you could have dinner with anyone in history, living or deceased, who would it be? Well, as part of the Diocese of Buffalo's 175th anniversary celebration, we thought it would be interesting to try something like that. And so through the abilities of technology and imagination, we've arranged to meet with some of the people whose work and faith helped shape the diocese and whose impacts are still seen and felt in the community today. We invite you now to sit back, relax, and enjoy this feast for your ears and your spirit. Welcome to Dinners with Our Founders. Here's your host of Dinners with Our Founders, Steve Sishan. Thank you, Your Excellency, and welcome, everyone. The Catholic Diocese of Buffalo was officially established in the year 1847. Before that, Buffalo was a part of the statewide Diocese of New York. When appointed to his new role as bishop of a new diocese spanning the western half of New York State, John Tymon chose to reside in Buffalo. That was a significant decision, which influenced the growth of the Catholic faith in a region that was becoming an increasingly important economic hub for the United States. Welcome, Bishop. Thank you for your hospitality. I've taken the liberty of ordering our meal, remembering that you're quite proud of your Irish ancestry. Yes, indeed. I like to tell people in my day that while I was born in Pennsylvania, I was conceived in Ireland. Here they are now. Two orders of shepherd's pie. Ah, an excellent choice. Most folks immediately think of corned beef and cabbage, but that's really an Americanized version of the Irish meal of bacon and cabbage. But shepherd's pie, <laughs> I look forward to this. Excellent. As we dine, perhaps you could tell us a little more about your early life and how you were led on the path to the priesthood. With pleasure. I was born in Kanawago, Pennsylvania in 1797. My parents, James Tymon and Margaret Leddy, were recent arrivals to America from County Cavan, Ireland. They had come here with little, but in short time built and gathered the means to raise a family. When I was six years old, we moved to Baltimore, where my father opened a dry goods store. Business was good for father. When I was a teenager, I enrolled at St. Mary's College in Baltimore. It was the first Catholic seminary founded in the United States since the Revolution. I graduated successfully, but went to work for my father's business. In 1818, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky, but only stayed there briefly. One year later, we moved again, this time to St. Louis, Missouri. My father, he was generous with his money. He was a good businessman, but also appreciated how blessed he and our family were, and he maintained a healthy sense of piety and charity. This was where I'd say my journey to priesthood really began. So do you remember how or, or when it was that you heard God's calling? Harder times were about to arrive, and I was about to face a personal tragedy which changed my life. The financial panic of 1819 devastated the economy. Banks were failing, mortgages were foreclosed, more and more people were losing their jobs. Poverty increased rapidly in the nation. My own father lost most of his wealth. It made me realize how 
uncertain. Man's wealth and prosperity really are, and how deceptive the pursuit of such wealth is. We endured through that loss, but for me, there was another loss to come. <laughs> I was in love. Her name was Mademoiselle Louisa de Guyon. <laughs> she was of a French Creole family who had come to the United States to escape violence in Haiti. She was smart. She was good-natured. She was a young woman of piety. She was perfect for me. When we were introduced, we both knew we immediately were fond of each other. And soon we were engaged. But we could never get married. She had a health condition, you see. We called it falling sickness in our time. Today you call it epilepsy. And she had the condition. It was severe, so much so that she died of complications from it. Mm. I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Indeed. <laughs> Broke my heart. But that, along with my family's turn and financial fortunes, left me realizing that pursuing the worldly mundane pleasures was folly. There had to be a higher purpose. I already was a man of faith. My mother raised us to be good, devout Christians, but now, along with that faith, I also had a new sense of focus. In 1823, at the age of 26, I said goodbye to the world I knew and began my path toward priesthood. I enrolled in St. Mary of the Barons Seminary in Perrysville, Missouri. It was there my professors included the Reverend Jean-Marie Audin, a Frenchman who had very recently been ordained a priest himself. The following year, I was invited to accompany him on a missionary journey which took us to Texas and then Arkansas. The journey took us through some rough terrain, we'd eat whatever berries or fruits we could find. Whatever God had provided for us on the trees and bushes along our path. Oftentimes the terrain was swampy. We often had to sleep on a floor if we were lucky enough to find shelter for the night. <laughs> Sometimes we had to sleep outdoors hoping we'd find a dry piece of land on which to lay. We did have a guide at the start of our journey. He decided it was impossible for him to carry on and he left. Ah, but we braved forward. There was also the matter of how we handled encounters with non-Catholics. You see, today, you may have Christians of different denominations living and working together and generally coexisting with little trouble or prejudice, but this was not the case for many Catholics in the earliest years of the United States. Many non-Catholics accused us of idolatry, suggesting we worship the cross itself and not God. Reverend O'Don explained that, no, we look to the cross not as the object to worship, but as the reminder of the suffering Christ underwent for us. It was amazing how successful he was in fostering conversations about our Catholic faith and converting many people as the result. We even met 
with some of the indigenous people living on the land. The Kwapa tribe were friendly to us and allowed us to set up an altar and hold masses. Their leaders engaged us in a discussion about our respective beliefs. We discovered we had much common ground. They believed in one god who was superior to lesser gods, but that one god insisted it was not he who was to be worshipped, but rather the great spirit who sent him. Much like Christ was sent by the Father to earth for us. We returned to St. Mary of the Barrens, and in 1825, I professed my vows to the Vincentian order. I was ordained a priest the following year. I spent some time teaching in the seminary, but also went back out on missionary work. I remember how effective Father Odan was in reaching into the minds and hearts of those who may have resisted the good news of Christ. Those experiences helped me succeed in my own right. I especially remember an encounter with a man who was about to die. In 1828, I had been called to Jackson, Missouri to speak with a condemned man, a man by the name of Presley Morris. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to hang. Up to that point, Mr. Morris had refused any interaction with local clergy, but Apparently, the authorities wanted to give his soul one last chance. And the night before he was to be hanged, I arrived in Jackson. I had traveled on horseback many miles to get there. Upon arrival, I saw a group of people who didn't exactly make me feel welcome. <laughs> they were led by a local preacher. Mr. Green was his name. He was also the editor of a local newspaper and was a very powerful and influential leader in the local community. He did not take kindly to Catholics. He was misguided by the belief that we worship idols, not God. I had appealed to the jailer to let me speak with Mr. Morris, but I wasn't allowed to do so alone. Mr. Green saw to it that I would not be allowed to meet with this prisoner unless he and his peers were present. Well, isn't this great? Another preachy preacher who has come to save me. Mr. Morris, I am Father John Tymon. Please, let me just have a few moments with you. Sure, make yourself at home. Maybe I can serve you some tea and crumpets. Oh, well, looks like that's not going to happen. Well, Father Tynan, I see you're off to a great start. Pastor Green, please. No, Mr. Morris. I understand I'm just the latest of many who have come to talk to you about God. But please, just hear me out for a little while. I lay down on a bed of straw and settled in right next to the condemned man. Morris was indeed a stubborn fella to start, and Pastor Green and his peers looking on certainly didn't help. But in time, when I engaged with Morris, it felt like it was just the two of us in the jail cell alone. I spoke of the Holy Trinity and the mystery surrounding the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I spoke of the Incarnation, how the Father 
loved us so much that he sent his son to become one of us. I spoke of the sacraments and their importance, of redemption, of the rewards in heaven if one repents, and of the fate of those who choose not to do so. When I finished, Morris was in tears. He was truly moved. And when I told him I would end my visit by reciting the Apostles' Creed, he soon joined in. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus, and in Jesus Christ, Christ, his only, his only Son, our Lord, 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 who was conceived, who was conceived by, by the Holy Spirit, Spirit born, born of the Virgin, Virgin Mary, Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, Pilate was, crucified, was crucified, died, died and was buried. He descended, he descended into hell. Into hell. On the third On day, the third he, day rose he rose again. I had reached him. I could hear it in his voice. But others in the room were not so moved. Do not on the final night of his life, deceive this man and doom his soul by teaching him the commandments of men. Pastor Green, I am teaching this man the Apostles' Creed. Do you not believe as the Creed states? I do not believe in your idolatry, your worship of images, and in your elevation of Mary to the status of God. Pastor, you have accused me this before. When I preached in the village courthouse, you may recall at the time I defended Catholicism and disproved all such allegations, and when the opportunity was there to prove me wrong, you said nothing. Yes, well, I believe tomorrow we should meet again in that courthouse, where I assure you I will not stay silent. For now, I pray, O Lord God of mercy, spare this condemned man from the sinister deeds of a man who would mislead him with his idolatry. The sheriff was eager to close the jailhouse for the night, but I agreed to debate Pastor Green the following day. And you did so in his town, with his people surrounding in their courthouse? Now that certainly takes some courage to stand alone like that. Were you concerned that there'd be a unfair debate? Oh, it was a one-sided battle, all right, but... <laughs> Not the outcome I think many were expecting. We took turns presenting our arguments, both of us getting up to a half an hour per turn. About three to four hours later, Pastor Green gave up and withdrew, but I kept going. I didn't intend to gloat, but rather I wanted to change their hearts. There was one heart which was touched that wasn't in the courtroom that day. It was back in the jail cell. It was that of Mr. Morris, who had not yet been hanged. I went to visit him one more time. Father Timon, thank you for seeing me in my final hours. The jailer told me about the debate and how it went. I cannot say it surprises me after your visit last night. I must tell you what you said, what it made me feel inside. I, uh, if it's not too late, I, I'm ready to become a Catholic. Uh, I wish to be baptized. Would you baptize me? Mr. Morris, that is wonderful news. And I will happily do so. If the jailer would kindly bring me a basin of water, please. Thank you. Lean forward as much as you can. 
Presley Morris, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Timon. Oh, impressive that you gave a condemned man a new feeling of hope for redemption in life after death. Isn't hope one of the most important things we have through our faith? Indeed, and your success in changing the mind and spirit of the prisoner had to have caught the attention of your superiors. <laughs> it certainly did. And over time, it meant being asked to take on more responsibilities, including leadership roles. So what other plans did they have for you? Well, in 1835, when the Vincentians held a meeting in Paris, France, they were establishing a new province for their order in the United States, and they appointed me to lead it as the superior. I was hesitant at first and ready to turn it down, but they convinced me to take the position. Among my tasks was saving the seminary. It was deep in debt and the order recommended I close it, but I felt it was worth saving and through hard work was able to keep it open. I was then asked to work with the seminaries in Louisville, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, and New York to help reform them and keep them operating as well. And then I understand you were named a bishop coadjutor of the Archdiocese of St. Louis? <laughs> oh, you're pronouncing it as the British would say it. In America, it's pronounced coadjutor. Remember, my son, I'm Irish by conception, not British. Yes. I was named to that position in 1839. Ah, but it doesn't matter how you say it, because I, I didn't stay in that position for very long. Hmm, why is that? I enjoyed my missionary work, and taking that position would have kept me from it. So I looked to get out of the position in St. Louis. The next year, I was named Prefect Apostolic for the Republic of Texas, and then... Seven years later, Pope Pius IX made a decision which changed my path. I was to leave Texas and come north to a new diocese that was being formed. The Diocese of Buffalo. Which was formed on April 23, 1847. I, but I didn't learn of my appointment until the following September. <laughs> The spade of communications back then. <laughs> I had to rush to New York City to be installed, but I lacked the funds and suitable clothing for the journey. Thankfully, friends helped me out, and I was soon on my way north. It was October 17, 1847, when I was consecrated by Archbishop John Hughes in St. Patrick's Cathedral. A suitable cathedral for a man as proud of Irish roots as you are. My heritage, as well as my fluency in Gaelic, were most helpful as I arrived in Buffalo. I was welcomed enthusiastically by Catholics of all backgrounds when I arrived in Buffalo. Made in a place to stay, I agreed to rent lodging at St. Louis Church, the oldest church in Buffalo. Hold on. You rented your living quarters from a parish? 
Aye. And that is where my unfortunate differences with that parish began. Back then, parishes operated by trustees insisted it was they who owned their own properties. However, it was my firm belief that my office of bishop was the rightful owner of all church property. <laughs> this didn't sit well with the fine folks at St. Louis Church. Many of them saw this as a rift between an Irish bishop and their mostly German congregation. You see, this was a time in Buffalo when the different ethnic communities had their own churches and parishes, and this often led to animosities among the different communities. It was unfortunate. After all, are we not all supposed to be Catholics together? Nonetheless, my stay at St. Louis was short and disappointing. Near the end of 1847, I was informed that the church's trustees decided it would be best that I move out and stay elsewhere. I had mentioned a while ago that my Irish roots would serve me well. After moving out of St. Louis Parish, made my way to the local Irish community. They were hard-working, very strong in their Catholic faith, but many were also quite poor and in great need. This is where I needed to be. They had built their own church in the neighborhood of Broadway and Ellicott Streets. This was the original St. Patrick Church in Buffalo. They built a newer St. Patrick's Church at Emsley and Seymour Streets many years later after my passing. Uh, but that's another story. I rented a three-story brick house across the street from the original church and used St. Patrick as my first cathedral. That original church isn't there anymore. It's now the site of the downtown branch of the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library. Although when the original St. Patrick Church was still standing, it was still many blocks away from the heart of the Irish immigrant community. How'd you make that work? It was the closest church to the First Ward, thus it was considered the home parish. The Buffalo region, meanwhile, was full of people still awaiting conversion or confirmation. This is where my zeal and my past work as a missionary really proved valuable. It is estimated I confirmed more than 4,000 people in Buffalo in my first year as its bishop. But my mission required hired me to visit the entire diocese and back then. Oh, <laughs> it covered a lot more territory. This was when Rochester and many counties east or south of there were within the Diocese of Buffalo. And I traveled throughout the diocese. I made sure of it. I provided sacraments to the faithful. I heard confessions. I confirmed people, many of them. I had to travel sometimes through very difficult conditions. But my zeal kept me moving. But there were great needs in Buffalo. And that's where I got especially busy. Yeah, I understand you had problems sometimes securing basic needs in health care for Catholics in Buffalo. This is true. You remember when I told you that oftentimes different Catholic ethnic communities kept apart with their churches? One of the bigger obstacles I ran into in my day 
was a prevailing prejudice against Catholics of any walk of life. The, the Protestant establishment of Buffalo in the mid-1800s had an open bias against the Catholic population, and this showed in their discrimination at institutions including hospitals, orphanages, and, and many city-run institutions. I pleaded with those running some of these institutions to be sensitive and merciful, but to accommodate the needs for not only physical but also spiritual care of my flock. It became clear that the best solution for this was to open our own institutions. But even with my zeal and passion, that was a task I could not do alone. So I sought help and I knew just who to invite. In 1848, I welcomed the Sisters of Charity to Buffalo to open an orphan asylum and a school. They also opened a hospital at Pearl and Virginia Streets, the original Sisters of Charity hospital site. Their arrival could not be better timed. An outbreak of cholera in 1849 left many people sickened and, tragically, many people died. Many children were orphaned. In some cases, widowed mothers found themselves in danger of being exploited, so the sisters worked to accommodate many of them. The sisters did a very good job running their hospital. In fact, according to the Buffalo Medical Journal, they had a higher rate of survival among cholera patients than the city-run institutions. Local schools were also a place where bias against Catholics was a problem. They were not allowed to express their own faith, but instead were forced to sing Protestant hymns and read Protestant texts. Again, to me, this would simply not do. We had been operating a school at St. Bridget's Parish, but the order that was run in the school, the Brigidine Sisters, struggled to keep their numbers up and unfortunately were forced to disband. But luckily, the Sisters of Mercy arrived in town just in time. They not only picked up the task of operating schools, including Our Lady of Mercy School and St. Joseph Academy, they also opened a soup kitchen in the First Ward as well as a pharmacy. That sounds like the Diocese of Buffalo was well on its way to growing, and so was the city of Buffalo. It was becoming an increasingly important hub for shipping and transportation, with ships and trains passing through. Yes, we were growing, and among this I took on a most ambitious task. Building a newer, larger, more suitable cathedral for the Diocese of Buffalo. Yeah, in any era, that's no small task. you got to find the space for it, as well as come up with the money for it. How were you able to come up with the funding to make this happen, especially with so many of the people that you were serving being so poor? Once again, Pope Pius IX would play a big role in moving the Diocese of Buffalo forward. In 1849, shortly into my tenure as bishop, I was instructed to travel to Rome to update the pontiff on the progress of our new diocese. I shared my story of my short-lived stay at St. Louis, my current lodging, and my use of St. Patrick's Church as the cathedral. I also told the Pope 
how the city of Buffalo was growing, and with it there was a need to strengthen our outreach. Bishop Tymon, you believe the Diocese of Buffalo needs a new dedicated cathedral? Yes, Your Holiness. St. Patrick Church in Buffalo has served as such, but as more people come to Buffalo, I risk bursting that church building apart at the seams. Additionally, a new central cathedral is important to bring in all the local Catholics together. I certainly had my moments when I took sides among the Irish, German and French Catholics in Buffalo, but I am reminded I am to serve all Catholics, not just those of my own heritage. Furthermore, as we continue to struggle against the prejudice against all of us as Catholics, I believe a new cathedral would be a symbol of strength and hope for a stronger future. I appreciate your vision, Bishop Tymon, and I encourage you to pursue this ambitious project. But while I respect your pride in your Irish heritage, I must make an important suggestion. What is it, Holy Father? You should place the Diocese of Buffalo under the patronage of St. Joseph. A good choice indeed. And one that was made by the Jesuit missionaries who arrived in that land 200 years before you. I was unaware of that. (laughs) Well, under the patronage of St. Joseph it is, Your Holiness. Pope Pius made $2,000 available to me to begin a fundraising effort. I traveled throughout Europe and met with royalty and nobility in places including Bavaria, Naples, Austria. I was able to raise more money and even collect various relevant artwork and objects to place inside this new cathedral. For example, I was able to negotiate with King Ludwig of Bavaria who graciously provided numerous stained glass windows. I also visited people in Mexico and other parts of our own continent to collect needed resources. While you'd make good on your vow to place the diocese under St. Joseph's patronage, I understand you once again reached into your Irish pride when preparing to build the cathedral. (laughs) I wouldn't call it sneaky. But yes, I again lean toward the Irish-American heritage when I selected Patrick Kelly, a fine architect from New York City, to design the structure. He drafted a spectacular Gothic design, like many of the churches and cathedrals you see in Europe. We broke ground and laid the cornerstone in February 1851. And where'd you get the labor to build the cathedral? A majority of the laborers came from the first ward in west side of Buffalo. Many were so poor, they could not contribute cash to help get the cathedral built. So, they donated their labor as their gift. Wait, so you mean after they'd put in a shift at work, they'd come out and put in more heavy lifting to help build the church? Bless their hearts. I was moved by their dedication. It wasn't easy for sure, and unfortunately, there were setbacks along the way. One poor unfortunate soul, a stonemason, fell to his death during construction. There was also a work stoppage when we 
ran out of money. Alas, not everyone necessarily worked on the site for free. Yeah, and the building materials certainly weren't free. Precisely. I continued to travel to plead, beg and borrow to get the cathedral finished. And then there was another interesting episode along the way. A terrible storm ravaged the city in 1853. Several homes were destroyed, and many families were left without a home. The cathedral was unfinished, but it was spacious enough to serve as an emergency shelter. Once, work crews put up tents inside to shield these people from the elements above. So I guess you could say it already served as a sanctuary before it was formally consecrated as a sanctuary. Well, put. (laughs) Through God. All things are possible. And that includes the dedication of the cathedral on July 1st, 1855. The interior was not yet finished, but at least it was enclosed and functional enough for local Catholics to gather and worship safely. I made good on the vow to dedicate the cathedral to St. Joseph in 1862, A statue of St. Joseph was installed above the entrance. And as I just mentioned, through God, all things are possible. The following year, in 1863, we paid off our last debts on the project. The Diocese of Buffalo at last had a proper cathedral. And you happen to be buried there. Yes, I am. Beneath the floor of St. Joseph Cathedral, I lie at rest to this day. I died in 1867, just four years after the debt was paid. Many years later, Bishop Charles Colton decided to build a new St. Joseph's Cathedral, and the diocese built it. That structure, ironically, was torn down in 1972, and Bishop Edward Head named the original St. Joseph's site as the cathedral once again. I believe, as the saying goes, everything old is new again. And you did so much more as Buffalo's first Catholic bishop. More churches were erected, new schools, an expansion of various ministries. But I certainly did not do that alone. I was blessed with a lot of help, as we saw with construction of the cathedral. To make those many ministries thrive, I sought the assistance of various orders and invited them to Buffalo. They included the Franciscans, Jesuits, Vincentians, the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, the Passionists, and the Christian Brothers, who later became known as the De La Salle Brothers. And that's just the orders of religious men. You also invited many women religious to help build the diocese. Yes. These included the Sisters of St. Joseph, the Sisters of the Good Shepherd, the Grey Nuns of the Sacred Heart, the Sisters of Mercy, the Sisters of St. Francis, and Sisters of St. Mary of Namur. Yep, and here we are, 175 years later and counting. I see you enjoyed your shepherd's pie. Yes, it was quite scrumptious. Excellent, and perhaps you and I can enjoy a nightcap then to toast the diocese you served as its first bishop. While we do that, let's leave it to your successor, Bishop Michael Fisher, to offer his thoughts. Bishop Fisher? John Tymon was indeed a passionate priest, bishop, and leader. His zeal, piety, connection with the community, and courage amidst adversity made him the ideal choice to become the first leader of the Diocese of Buffalo 
back in 1847. Bishop Tymon was a builder, not only of facilities and missions, but of the faith itself. As a traveling missionary prior to his arrival in Buffalo, Tymon had a remarkable talent for winning the hearts and souls of people whom before meeting him had their doubts and prejudices of the Catholic faith. The tale you heard in this program of John Tymon bringing a condemned prisoner to Christ on the eve of his death is a true story. And it's just one example of Tymon's many encounters which resulted in conversions to Catholicism. His legacy lives on in Buffalo and Western New York. There's a high school in Buffalo named in his honor. And of course, I preside over masses in the cathedral he built, St. Joseph Cathedral. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dinners with Our Founders. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. You've been listening to Dinners with Our Founders, imagined one-on-one conversations spotlighting the lives of some of those who shaped the Roman Catholic Diocese of Buffalo throughout its history. The program was conceived by Patrick Beakey and produced by the Department of Communications for the Catholic Diocese of Buffalo. The voice talents participating were Bishop Michael Fisher as himself, Steve Seashon as your host, Tim Joyce as Bishop John Tymon, Gregory Tobin as Pastor Green, Richard Martone as Pope Pius IX, and I'm Michael Mrosiak, who played Presley Morris, the condemned prisoner. I'm also the show's writer and producer. Thank you for joining us for Dinners with Our Founders.